0: This is why we love racing in all its forms. It's king of swing fighting,
1: though. He's a superstar, a champion pacer. Untaps in front, untaps holding on. What a win! Untap from the RSN Sandwich Cup. And a very elegant. Ten group ones. And now the greatest of them all, the
0: Melbourne
2: Cup. For the next hour. R.S.N. is Cracking the Codes. Morning, everyone, and
0: welcome to Cracking the Codes. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic day today out at the Valley. There's a lot to look forward to out there. There's a couple of things going on that we're going to work out, not just the racing side of it. There's something else going on we're going to find out about as well. It's a bit of a bucket list show today as, I, as my friends join me, Dan and Simone. You know why? Why? Good morning. Good morning. morning. Good morning. Uh, because I missed the Waterloo Cup this year, so it's on my bucket list for next year, and King Island is on the bucket list as well, and we're going to have a chat You've to either a got
1: a big list or you're going to need a really big bucket. <laughs>
0: it's a pretty bleak thing to talk about, too. It's a little bit sort of morbid talking about bucket lists, but um, that does lead us to a couple of the subjects uh, du jour, and one of them is um, the, King, the fate of the King Island races, which I'm very up and about about, and we're going to have a chat to a guy called Chris Diplock this morning who uh, is one of the many trainers in the mainland who's shown an interest in trying to help out. Been going since 1892, yeah. seven races between late October and early February. Huge, huge historic thing. They started in 1892 and they paid them in wallaby pellets. Oh, that, that was is. the original currency. <laughs> so it
1: was cheese and lobster later cheese, on. Cheese, lobster, golf and now. So I've got a good story about that, but I'll tell you about it later. All
0: right. So we're running, they're running out of horses and running out of humans, basically. And in order to keep it going, they need support from the mainland. And Chris Diplock is a... Packingham trainer, horsebreaker, he and others have thought, sort of, you know what, I'm going to do what I can to help out with the horses. Uh, and speaking of horses, that's the loosest segue of all time, speaking of horses, <laughs> um, there's something else going on at the Valley today. Um, young Darcy's even going to turn up. Why she, what's she out there to watch today? Uh,
3: well, I said that Matt will be there and um, she said I'll have to go and say hello to him. But whether or not that eventuates, who knows? Um, but the ride, to, the Pony Club Victoria ride to time state championships is on at Mooney Valley between oh, from between eleven and twelve. The presentations are done between races two and three. So really good concept, and Racing Victoria have been very supportive of this over the years. But it's growing, growing and gaining momentum now. So um, we do have a rider from our Pony Club down at Mount Dened who's going to join us this morning on the phone to tell us about her experience with ride to time. She's a dual state championship, oh, champion, so I'm um, oh. looking to add a third <laughs> title to her name. Um, Stop intimidating so, us. So we'll catch up with Matilda Bremner um, about the Ride to Time today at Mooney Valley. And also, Matt, I know a subject of yours that you love is all about track preparation and the perception to the public about greyhound racing and how we can do it better. And Corey, he's from the Meadows, is going to chat to us um, after he's... He's a, ch-
0: he's a chum of yours, isn't he?
3: He is. He's a very good friend of mine and... Um, He's sort of like a pseudo-husband, has been over the years. It's like that thought, husband you we have thought, when you don't have one. were your one. pseudo-husbands? Oh, goodness me. We've had
0: Dan, Dan can cook.
3: Oh. Craig cr- cr- can mow the lawns. He, he can't cook. But um, we've been on many road trips together and, um, look, we talk about all sorts of things, but I know his passion for greyhound racing, and it it really shines through, and it came through a couple of weeks ago where he won the GRV Board Leadership Award, so we'll hear all about that too.
1: All right. So the Fiend today, Daniel? Yes. It's got a great history, mate. Some famous horses have won it, and been a bit of news this week about the Fiend and where it fits, and it changed, uh, what was it, 2013, and where is it now in the pecking order, but... Um, being some great horses. I'm just going to throw to one and uh, just going to pluck out one because one whichever of the, one it one is, of the it's a superstar. Yeah.
4: And naturalism give it his head. And with great exhilaration, put three links on them. My Brilliant Star and Ram Yaw fighting out the miners, but it's all naturalism on the run home. Gee's good. Naturalism goes on to win it by five links, maybe more. A photo of the miners, My Brilliant Star and no...
1: One of my favourites, Dan. With well, a still? <laughs> say all of them and I want to speak out of turn to say but that's the best horse that they've ever put a saddle Richard always said that yep no, he was a fantastic horse, uh, naturalism. For On sure. one-on-one ability, as in a wait-for-age oh, superstar. Yeah. And, uh, and look, he was probably robbed of winning a plate in one of the greatest Cox plate fields. He starts 6-4 to favourite and he falls over. He probably should have won a Japan Cup. He was a bit stiff in certain races, wasn't he? But no one denied his ability. And the way he won that race that day, you can see why he started such a short-price favourite in that year's coxplate of 92.
0: 92, one of the great calls too, because Brian Martin just, it was like the dominoes falling and he picked everyone in the race call. Uh, hey, guys. We're going to take a break. We've got some amazing guests this morning on Cracking the Codes. We're going to take an early break and then come back with Matilda Bremner.
2: Loving their racing, pacing and chasing. Matt Stewart, Dan Malicki and Simone Fisher, Cracking the Codes.
3: Well, Matt, you know, sometimes we feel a little bit inadequate with some of the guests that we have on this show. We've Not Dan, because he's called Melbourne Cups and he's... The most popular person in harness racing, and also yeah, in do the, you ever
0: feel inadequate, Dan? In like Simone Book and I, records. every day
1: we wake up, we feel inadequate. But Do you ever have those days? Yeah, of course. You know, even the best of us, you know, have uh, have off days. No, don't be silly, guys. Yeah, well, anyway. Sorry, Simone. Back to what you were saying. <laughs> so,
3: our next guest is probably making me feel a little bit inadequate. A, a lovely young lady called Matilda Bremner, who is riding in the ride to time finals at Mooney Valley today. And she's already the two-time state championship. This is a Pony Club series that Racing Victoria are supportive of. And um, the Ride to Time is all about riding at a given pace around a racetrack. And um, it goes to state finals. So Matilda's joining us on Cracking the Codes this morning. Good morning, Matilda. Morning. You've got a big day ahead of you. I'm sure you'll be heading out the gate very shortly with your lovely big grey horse, Sparky. But can you tell us what you're looking forward to today and what to expect?
2: Um, I, honestly, I'm just looking forward to being back at Moonee Valley. It's been cancelled for the last few years, so I'm just excited to be back there and be back in the atmosphere of the race day and everything.
1: Matilda, it must be pretty impressive thinking of some of the venues where this could be held, and you're at a place where one of the most famous horse races in the whole world is run the Cox Plate. Um, what's it feel like to you? Does it feel like an even bigger stage because you are at Moonee Valley?
2: Yes, definitely, and especially because it is, run on a race day like our training days are just run you know in the morning on a non-race day so there's it's just the pony club riders at the track whereas the state final is a big race day there's spectators there's the racehorses it just it's such a big atmosphere
0: Dan when she gets to the school at the 600 she'll just step it up like waverly star and bone crusher hey matilda what what's involved in it because the other the other experiment that we've had is the pony races and this is this is a bit different and it's more specific about individuals and time, I gather. What 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 takes place today?
2: So it is very different to the pony race um, because where the pony race is just literally like, you know, the racehorses all the ponies going at once and going as fast as they can, ride to time is more of a one rider at the time and really targeted towards an optimum time. So for me, I'm going to be riding in the open section today which means that across 1,000 metres I have to ride it as close to 109 seconds as I can. And so is that a flat gallop?
0: About... Is that as fast as you can or it's mo- it's, it's moderated to fit into that time frame? How, do you, how does it work?
2: So the winner will be the person who is the closest to that time. So that time for me on my 16 one-hand horse, it's pretty much a nice forward canter. It's not a gallop. It's just a forward canter.
3: Now, I can say that Darcy's been doing the Ride to Time series this year as well with Matilda at the Geelong Racecourse, and she's been in the maiden section, and you know she might miss out by five seconds either way, going a little bit too fast, and then she backs it off, but she goes a little bit too slow. But Matilda, every time, what do you come in like about 0.1 outside your optimum time? You're just um, an absolute pro at it. You've just got such a rhythm with Sparky, haven't you? In
0: jockey terms, Matilda, you've got a clock in your head.
3: Well, I have done it. I've done it since twenty
2: fifteen, so I have quite a few years' practice at it. Um, and yeah, it's, I've definitely learned a lot about Sparky's pace, and we're quite in tune with each other by now.
1: So, when when you're often running, like do you do you have a strand or it's a flag that lets you go, and and then do you start counting in your head? Do you count, or to count out aloud, or or do something, sing, or there's something to keep a beat, a rhythm, a time, you know, to to stick to.
2: Yeah, so we'll set off probably from about the 1,200 metre mark and then once we get to the 1,000 metre mark, there'll be someone who starts timing us. For us, we have a little beeper, a little metronome that's clipped onto our helmet um, and that counts out, like it it beats every second for us. So it's up to us to then count every second using that beeper um, and, you know, we work off the furlong markers to know So as I said, I'm doing it in 109 seconds, so I have to do one furlong of 21 seconds and four furlongs of 22 seconds.
0: So I imagine the adrenaline for you and your horse, because you're at a racetrack and there's a crowd and so on, it's going to be, you're going to have to be more careful than normal to to restrain yourself to, to stay to time?
2: Yeah, especially the first year I did it and there was pony rides happening and I knew Sparky is not a fan of Shetland. That did make it very, like, I was quite nervous about it and it it is big atmosphere, but I've sort of, we have gotten a bit more used to it over the years and sort of get, I get very in the moment when I'm riding and it's quite, you know, it is, it does keep you in the zone having that beeping in your ear to keep you going each second.
1: What about track condition? We're looking at you know softish, <laughs> wettish tracks. They've got to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, Exactly. Uh, time-wise, uh, we we could be dealing with a track today that uh, is five to six seconds slower than what a normal dryish track uh, would be. So are you taking that into account or does that help that I've just mentioned that? Oh, I think you've thrown a curveball. It's got to be a soft seven, Matilda. How are you going to cope with that? <laughs>
2: For me, to be honest, it, I don't really think about it that much in depth. Um, you know, I don't, I, you know, at Pony Club and stuff, we ride on all so- sorts of surfaces and it's just sort of just riding your ride. For me, it's just, we're not going flat out or anything. So I don't think the track will be too much of an issue, but... We'll see
0: how we go. She might find herself in one of those fast
1: lanes, down and not <laughs> know us yeah. and, and pulling up hard, you know, in the, over the last furlong. But that, how many um, competitors are there? Are they, they both uh, sexes or, or just limited to uh, the females, Matilda? So there's two sections. Um, there's an open section
2: and a maiden section, um, and there's 10 riders in each.
3: And Matilda, can you tell us a little bit about your horse, Sparky? I've just mentioned to the boys that they'll be able to see him quite clearly. He's a a stunning grey gelding, almost white really now, isn't he? But um, I know he's such a special horse to you. Just give us a bit of a, tell us a little bit about Sparky.
2: So Sparky has been a real, like a partner in crime for me for a very long time. I got him straight off the track. He's a retired racehorse. So two weeks after his last race, he came to me as just, yeah, uh, learned, knowing nothing, just coming off the track. Um, that was in 2014. Um, so as of Monday, we, that was eight years together for us. And so I've been through everything with him and sort of built him up from scratch and sort of done heaps of different pony club disciplines with him, sort of taught him the ropes. He's taught me a lot we've sort of had a very long and very interesting partnership
0: together. Oh, sounds like a friendship more than anything else. Uh, hey, what's the story with the Ride to Times as far as um, playing out on race racetracks? Uh, race Victoria is very supportive of it, which is which is a good tick. How is this the... Because oh, I haven't experienced them before at the races. Is this the first one and leading to more? How's this going to play out? So the Ride
2: to Time program has been happening since about... 2014 I think the first year I participated was 2015 um, and the state final has been running about the same time I think so I've been, this will be my sixth state final today Um, so it's been going for a couple of years and yeah we have been very lucky to have the support of local racetracks in the case of us we ride at Geelong Racecourse and we're very lucky to have the support On on race day?
0: everything.
2: No. Our, so our is this is the first
0: one on a race day? No. The Rooney right. belt, Val-
2: the state's final has always been on a race day. Okay. Yeah.
3: And, and Matilda, Racing Victoria are really getting behind it this year, aren't they? They've got, Racing.com are covering it. They've got, like you say, pony rides, food vans, all sorts of entertainment, face painting for kids. And I know you've got a couple of little supporters who will be going there to cheer you on, On Saturday, Darcy and her little friend Aria are are heading up there and I'm sure they'll be down near the winning post yelling out to you, so I hope they don't distract you too much.
2: Oh, no, it's very exciting to have such a, you know, it's really a great idea to have a family day on this Ride to Time Day because it's really great for all the Pony Club kids to come out and I'm very excited to have a couple of, you know, little cheerleaders on the Mm -hmm. side for me. I'm sure they'll get me over the line in just the right
0: time. Well, Dan, we're there from ten till twelve ish? What, yep. uh, Matilda? What time is it? What time is it on today? So the pony club
2: riders will be riding from eleven till twelve. Um, the maiden riders will go first, and then the open
3: riders. And then the presentations are done between races two and three down at the winning post. So we'll get if in you on see, this action, Dan. Yeah, if you see Indeed. a big grey horse, a book, you, could, you, you could
0: call it. It's
1: a one horse race. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you'll have you to come up with do.
0: some colourful well, sort it's of anecdotes. Stunning.
1: Bigger field than it's in the fan today.
0: You'll have to tell um, in the race call of Matilda. You'll have to tell her life story. So you better give us a few bullet points, Matilda. How? What's? Uh, are you? Did you come from a horsey family?
2: Um no, my mum did have like a horse that she rode around. We come from farming lines, and so she had a horse that she rode around the paddock a little bit. But other than that, no, not not a horsey family. Just. I was very obsessed from a young age and was very single-minded towards horses and luckily my parents supported that.
0: Where'd you get Sparky from?
2: Uh, I got him from my grandfather because my grandfather does own race racehorses. Um, he wouldn't know what a halter was if you put it in his hands, but he, he just sort of owned them and liked looking at the breeding lines and everything.
3: And I must say, Matilda, um, without pumping up your tyres, I mean this very genuinely, Matilda, at Pony Club, she is the oldest rider at Mount Dunedin and all the younger kids do look up to her and she's a wonderful ambassador and a mentor to a lot of the riders at Pony Club and um, that is very heartfelt because we all know, all us parents, you know, she's ready to help the little kids and she takes on those roles at um, at a more than a club level, at um, competitions and things, helping them out and... Yeah, she's just been a wonderful young lady around the pony club scene for quite a while. So, look, Matilda, we wish you all the very best today and um, Dan and Matt will be looking out for you as you go down that straight at we'll Mooney Valley.
1: We'll be cheering you on but trying not to upset your rhythm and counting. Do you get
0: to ride Sparky from the mounting yard through the tunnel where all the cox Plate horses go onto the track? Is that how you start?
2: No, we'll be in the, in the centre of the track.
0: Wow! Yeah, oh, well, that'll be great political. fun as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye out for him. We um, we'll try and get some involvement with yeah. the, uh, with the uh, the ride to time on the morning, Dan, because I think it's
1: fantastic. Oh, I think it's a great initiative, and just that uh, connection between Pony Club. It's a really uh, important connection uh, that is far more important to thoroughbred racing and, and harness racing uh, than a lot of people know and I think we need a lot more of it. It sounds like it's going to be quite uh, a spectacle and we know how it is, uh, important it is. Why can't we have essentially a curtain raiser for every race meeting yep. along these lines? I think it's fantastic. And,
0: and I'm much more of a fan of Ride to Time than the pony races as you know. I think there's a bit a few hazards with that but this is absolutely um, fantastic. Fantastic.
3: And there's so many uh, kids in Matilda, you'll agree with me here, so many young teenagers who are on off the track horses now at Pony Club, aren't they? So we're really, it's a, a, two clubs or, you know, racing, two industries that are supporting each other and they do go hand in hand. We see so many off the trackers um, at Pony Club these days.
0: Do you want to be the next Annabelle Neesham or Gay Waterhouse maybe?
3: Probably not.
2: I'm happy just chugging around on Sparky and <laughs>
0: doing my nice <ninth> even pace. <laughs> got visions of you and Sparky so close, just visions of you riding off into the sunset at the end of the day. <laughs>
3: I'm sure they do some days in down in the beautiful area that they live. So Matilda, look, it's been wonderful having you on Cracking the Codes this morning and um, look forward to... Oh, Dan's got one more thing to well, say. Well, I was going
1: to say, as Matt just pointed out, too, we'll be out there and we'll be cheering you home and we hope to see you Waltzing to the line, Matilda. Oh, see, he's, oh. he's so and he's been wanting to say it for ten minutes. And how? That's how
0: did point. you rate it out of ten, Matilda? <laughs> that line um, from him there—it
1: was um, a three, wasn't it? Yep.
3: That will be part of polite. your uh, your
1: cheerleading brigade on Saturday uh, the, later this morning. So be careful.
3: Yeah, look, it's been great having you on cracking the Codes, Matilda. And you'd better go and um, get that horse loaded up and head to Mooney Valley. Yeah. Thank you so much. Matt, I know there was lots of controversy earlier this year with the pony racing um, that you are opposed to. And the more I hear your argument against, I sort of start tending to agree with many of the elements that you're coming up with. And like Matilda mentioned, this is the complete opposite of pony racing. This is riding at a given pace. This is what jockeys have to do for trainers if they're told to go out. So it's learning that pace of their horse under them. Um, Yes, they have the metronomes in their ears, to keep that beat, but it's still not as easy as it sounds. Greater
1: skill, judgment, uh, uh, and and appropriate with that connection, particularly with uh, horses. that A lot of them are uh, thoroughbred racehorses. It's great to highlight that uh, within uh, the racing industry and on race days. But there are other elements. I mean, I know you you talked about the pony racing, but there's still other elements uh, that could be incorporated into having those various elements of pony clubs on race day I think it's a great idea well
0: and it's a more likely entry point too because I know my son has ridden to time and that leads to track work which for the right size kid can lead to being a jockey so this is a very much a a potentially transitional thing into racing so and I see it as a much more kind of realistic entry point than kids scorching around on on Shetlands
3: but even if it's not going to lead to anything in racing, if you're eventing and you're whatever grade you're riding, like say your Olympic riders have got to ride, I think it's 550 metres a minute, they've got to know because time is the essence getting over those cross country jumps. They cannot afford to lose half a second so they need to know that their horse is going at that pace and consistently taking into account up and down hills and through water and all the rest of it. So it gives your pony club riders a really good skill um, and learning it from a young level like Darcy. She's one of the lowest grades at Pony Club, but that's fine. But she can get around a cross-country course without going too fast and without going too slow.
0: And if you talk to trainers like Mick Price, who loves getting kids from equestrian, mainly girls, because that's the the volume tends to be female, he would be a lot more impressed with that type of scene for recruiting into his stable than the pony racing scene, I absolutely assure you.
1: Slightly off track, but in the same sort of realm – Remember the days they have the hunt club meetings at Mooney Valley, and they would get the were they beagles? I think they were beagles, yep. and there was hundreds and hundreds of them, and they'd all parade over, the, you know, up the home straight. It was an incredible on sight. on Hiskins Day. It was Hiskins Day, and I reckon they might have had another midweek meeting as yep. well, um, which was Hunt Club yep. Day. Yep, but it was an extraordinary sight, and you can imagine hundreds and hundreds of the. I think they were beagles, but all these dogs involved, you know, with the hunting. I don't know if that's a appropriate anymore or not but regardless it happened so because there's not a fox involved it was uh well there's plenty around at mooney valley it might have uh, helped eradicate some of those but it was a spectacular (laughs) sight and just having other (laughs) elements there have been a few silver foxes matthew uh there's been other elements outside of racing and, and i would i would love to to endorse those other elements of um Of you know of pony club of equestrian, it wouldn't matter if it was dressage; it's still entertainment because the majority of the people that are there on the day, they're horsey people. Yep, they don't just love thoroughbreds. You got me going again because there was a guy at the races for twenty years we used to call the
0: Silver Fox, but I can't remember who it was was as a guy.
3: Ned Bryant was nicknamed the Silver Fox. Okay, there's been a few Silver Foxes. There has been, but they have had things similar to that. Dan, they've had like cross country demonstrations at. I don't know if it's Caulfield. They've had, you know, riders there and they've set up jumps and had to do like a, a short course just to demonstrate mm. thoroughbreds outside of racing. So Absolutely. Our next guest this morning is uh, Corey Hiscock. He's not only a really, really good friend of mine, but he's been in the industry for a long, long time in greyhound racing and um, has a wealth of experience and knowledge and someone that many people do draw on from worldwide in the preparation of tracks, and surfaces and infrastructure and also ultimately in the welfare of greyhound racing. So Corey is a curator out at the Meadows and Matt, I know you love sinking your teeth into this and the, the dynamics of racing and track surfaces and um, Corey recently won the GRV board, um, now if I look at my notes, leadership award <laughs> and um, deservedly so. I, I think everyone agreed that Corey did deserve this award. He put so much time, effort and the passion he displays in his role out at the Meadows and other tracks in helping people is um, second to none. So good morning, Corey, and thanks for joining us on Cracking the Codes.
5: Good morning, Simone and team. How are we?
0: Good, good. Hey, um, one thing, a little bit of homework before the end of the interview because you're a very good friend of Simone's. You need to tell us something, our audience, something about Simone that they don't already know. At the end of the interview. So you have to rack your brain, give us a little Simonism <laughs> by the end of the interview. probably half an
3: hour.
0: <laughs> Only one, two. I know there's probably 500, oh. but just one thing about Simone Fisher that nobody know, not many people would know. Okay, um, I'll
5: have a think about have that. Have a think. Come back to it at the
3: end of the interview, okay?
0: Yeah. Get a little she's now absolutely a petrified because she's got no idea what you're going to say.
3: <laughs> no, it'll be okay. We've travelled a lot together and... Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll think about that very strategically.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Corey, as Simone said, I'm big on this because I'm, I just love making it uh, visually as good and as uh, palatable as it can possibly be, and I love the coursing and the straight racing because there's not as many incidents. And I know there's been a lot of issues, a lot of focus on cambering and and and. Uh, canine safety and all those sorts of things and that's obviously something that whilst curating that you have to be mindful of too is making the meadows and wherever else as safe as possible for the greyhounds
5: that's right um it's certainly uh areas that you discussed there are uh, areas of the um the industry that I'm, i'm passionate about in effectively uh, a lot of injuries, severe injuries in greyhound racing are, are generally the result of interference. And that, that's greyhounds bumping into one another as they either negotiate a straight line or a turn. And uh, so therefore, I think the, the biggest upswing in improvement to, to animal welfare for the industry Australia-wide is actually to look at getting races running as cleanly as possible. And uh, I think there's some pretty big decisions in the future for for our governing bodies around Australia to make in relation to uh, things like random box draws. Don't really make a lot of sense if we're trying to get a, a clean race run. So um, there's elements that like that need to have some um, some dramatic change. J- just and, on the, just that on,
0: on that one, good just good. before I let you go, because yeah. that is interesting. So you know when you get a dog that's. A fast greyhound, but draws say box five, and it's got three fast greyhounds inside it. It's potentially going to be a a situation to the first. And is that what you're talking about? Where you, yeah, it's difficult though with the fairness of punting as well, isn't it? To just explain that, Corey, what you mean by random box draws and what the solution might be.
5: So, so the way I the way I look at it is if if someone presented me with a blank piece of paper and said design a greyhound race that'll be as safe as possible from the premise that major injuries come from interference. So if I... And we're talking the extremes, not every greyhound, so it's a small portion of the greyhound population, but if a greyhound is an extreme railer out of the boxes, so we're talking close to the start, not not 50 metres away from the start, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to put that, you know, with dogs on its inside. So... The, the the general consensus of, of preferential box draws is that you may have one or two or three railing greyhounds within a field, so they'll they'll take up the inside boxes and they still might draw between each other as to who gets box one or two or three. But if I'm the trainer with the greyhound that runs nice and straight, but he actually runs quite quick to the first sectional, I'm pleased that you've now sorted out the field and I might lead the race more appropriately to the first turn. and. There's a difference when discussing the preferential box rules in relation to widened railing greyhounds. It's not what the greyhounds do once they've run the 50 or 100 metres down to the first turn, and they might track wider into the turn. That can be a very different thing that, that causes the greyhound to do that. It could be its weight and its size, and therefore, if it's a if it's a tighter radius turn, the greyhound might not be able to track well through the turn and shift off. That potentially creates interference, and and then we move into the design process of. Cambering and relative to what the speed of the greyhound is going around the arc. And the the ultimate utopia is to get a field of greyhounds to go into a turn, effectively not touch one another, and come out the other end of the turn into the back straight.
0: Tricky one, though, isn't it, with the orchestrating an advantage to certain greyhounds in a certain scenario, Dan? Like more as a punter. Look, Corey, I, I understand, I think overwhelmingly. What you're saying is is great, but I think the little pushback will be unfair advantage to certain greyhounds in a in a sport of chance.
5: I mm. think it's potentially advantaging every greyhound, though. Yeah, if, if that's the case, then then cleaner. sure, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think my, my my viewpoint would be that that the the revenue from from the gambling dollar should not inform the decision of whether a race is to be run cleaner and therefore safer i think we present the race as uh it possibly can be its safest version and the punting dollar will actually take care of itself
0: we'll react to that scenario yeah exactly yeah
5: exactly and i i think if you if you i I don't punt at all in fact i've never had had a bet um but i would imagine that when you when you analyze a field even if it's been put into a preferential box draw type system you are still analysing that and determining what you think is the best greyhound in the race and going to win. So there are, there are already races that you would potentially be punting on that are quite well sorted, even from a random box for a point of view. And, and you'll be you know choosing the middle of the field to win the race because you think that's going to be the, the fastest dog to the first turn. Um, so I think the punting dollar almost takes care of itself and we should definitely focus on clean running of races.
1: In the UK and you know, the areas that we get to see in on, on, on a Sky Channel, they generally only have fields of six. So yeah. if here where capacity field is, is eight and obviously three place dividends with eight runners, but could that be an area by reducing the size of the field, whether it's by one or two, that's got to help to a degree, Corey? Is that something that you, you would consider as being beneficial?
5: Um, My understanding of, and it's not a full understanding of it, but my understanding of some six-dog racing uh, trial periods that occurred in South Australia is that it actually didn't have a great deal of impact on on overall turnover. And when you're talking greyhound safety in relation to an incident potentially causing a major injury or a severe injury, then law of probability tells us that if there's six greyhounds in a field, we've just dropped the, the percentage chance of that occurring. So... So, clearly, lesser greyhounds in a field might present us with an overall reduction in injuries. Uh, The same way as potentially ensuring that we mandate um, better education of greyhounds going into field racing um, could also present us with some reductions in that. So, I think initially six-dog racing in younger greyhounds, or lesser-experienced greyhounds, maidens. I can see a real benefit in that because... um, Greyhounds do mature and learn how to race. And, and certainly if you, Simone will back me up here, if you watch a pre brawl race on nearly any greyhound track, it has you know, less interference than what you see in a, in a maiden or a grade seven type event.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, no it's, I was talking to a greyhound person the other day who... Was of the view you can you can attack these things in a number of ways. One is um, to make sure that the greyhounds are better educated and qualified before they bounce the ball. Before you know, like so, you don't have that yes. lower end. Uh, one thing I've noticed too, and Simone, this is something that you, because of your situation, would would have a view on as well. One thing, Corey, that I always and I've learned the lesson as a punter that if there's a vacant box. And you're either side of it. It doesn't necessarily mean the greyhounds either side of a vacant box are going to have a clearer run. Quite often, they see the fresher and bounce into each other. Is spacing so, of boxes with that? Or I actually think spacing boxes just means like they wave. I don't necessarily think that that's a solution either.
3: I've never thought of that. Uh, I
5: I'm think sure. you're uh, you're spot on. So so, uh, without going into the scientific detail of whether it's right or wrong, one of the things I've learned over time. Um, from very uh, aged and experienced trainers is if they come and trial two dogs together, they won't actually separate them across boxes. They won't mm. put two dogs in box one and four because effectively what you're potentially doing is increasing the amount of impact that when or the velocity of that impact mm. when the dogs come together. So as silly as it might sound, eight dogs very close to one another actually has a, a lesser. Uh, impact or fallout from when
0: they do collide with one another. Well, you notice it, Dan, as a punter and race caller and um, everything else that's on your wiki page. um, uh, (laughs) I was always of the view, you know, when you get, say, a box five is scratched and there's four and six without anything, and I always think, oh, I'll back these two because they've got clear air. It always works out the opposite because they just end up, without being crass, half the time they end up smashing into each other from a further apart
1: than they normally would, Corey. So. Well, why I would think, that happen think,
0: um, then? Because oh, it's just okay. fresh. What, what they just the it gives them wavering room but to well, waver. I'm, what
1: I'm saying is, if that was the case, and I, I I agree with what Corey is saying, but why wouldn't the vacant boxes? If there's only six greyhounds that accept, why wouldn't the vacant boxes then be boxes seven and eight?
5: That's exactly what. Well,
1: yes. Well, good then. point. The, the yeah. We're solving a few things here, Corey. <laughs> this is this is gonna. We'll, we'll
0: put this on the GRV website.
5: <laughs> well, I look. I, I'm a bit of a thinker, and. Uh, And when I think of greyhound racing, there's a few things that bemuse me. And that is one of them, that that I would think the ideal system, if you have a scratching, is that the dogs move across a box. And um, so your vacant boxes are on the outside in the creation of the field. But potentially, if there's also a late scratching in a race, why don't all the dogs move across the box? Now, where that is complex is that it's just about the labelling. So, it literally is a colour and a number that we put on the front of a set of boxes. Mm. So, if suddenly all of those labels, which they can, move across one, then it doesn't have any impact on how punters view a field. Does it affect form, know, guides? form guides? Like
0: if five becomes six, did they retain their number but well, they just move the a thing. box? The only yeah.
5: thing that makes box six box six is the sticker I've got on the front of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Yes. But this is, so this, is cause this is fascinating because
1: this is getting there. to the the nut of a few issues I think with um, mm. say thoroughbred racing, standardbred racing. There is a scratch and they'll move down one, don't they? No, yeah. do they? I'll, I'll ask mm.
5: I'll ask you a couple of curly questions that I've never really understood the answer to. So, if we want greyhounds to run straight out of the boxes and that makes us have a cleaner race, why does the lure come from behind?
0: Exactly, it haunts them. It chases them up, doesn't it? And it's sort of, yeah, I know what you mean. It roars past them naturally
5: yeah. because it's coming from behind. It's going to be to the left of them when yes. the box is open. So yeah. we're we're creating in the education of greyhounds a leftward movement, a like
0: left hand turn way. mentality.
5: Yeah, and even dogs with Why only. that happens?
0: what's the capella bar straight line drag along the track? What what's the solution to? Because logistically, the lure has to be attached to something that can't interfere with the greyhounds and, and so play on. Play what's the best place? What's the best place to think have line?
1: outside rail, don't they? They have the boxes towards um, the outside rail, a lot of the
0: places. where
5: it's, it's, It gets really complex because there are all of these variables. Certainly the capella of the track as a straight track. The dogs run straighter there, whereas we see examples at Murray Bridge and Heelsville and, and Richmond where because they're running on a traditional left-hand rail lure system, the dogs head towards that direction. But... One thing straight racing tells us is that dogs aren't robots either. They don't run in straight lines. They will still shift across to wherever they're comfortable on the track. But
0: what's the best version? Can can greyhounds be taught that there's a trigger when the box is released that that ignites a chase mentality without, this Um, will sound ridiculous, without necessarily chasing a lure, the idea of chasing a lure? Is, Is there anything in that, Corey?
5: Well, I think because greyhounds are habitual and they're trained habitually, you can effectively can train them to do anything in a sense of what your overall outcome would want to be. So, so I'm I'm sitting here today at the meadows and we're trialling and we've got 120 trials today of single trials. So the dog goes around by itself. And it, and again, one of those things that amuses me is I, I look out of the window and think well, this is not teaching the greyhound anything in relation to racing. It doesn't teach it how to be competitive with other uh, other grounds. It doesn't teach it how to balance and how to take a bump and, and so forth. So so across Australia, we, we, we have these systems in place that don't actually encourage better racing and cleaner racing and, um, and therefore, you know, welfare outcomes of reduction in injuries. So I think within the industry, we at times can have governing bodies that are a little bit reticent to make decisions because uh, it can potentially upset the participant base. And so because we've all got to be on the same journey at the same time and and quite happy with one another, there's probably some mechanisms that need to be mandated moving forward. But they are tough decisions for governing bodies. It's just like politics is if a politician upsets his um, constituency, he probably won't get voted in at the next election. And, and uh, I think there's a little bit of that where we... it'd be like running round one of the AFL and not having any pre-season or any, you know, pre-season matches and then wondering why so many things occurred incorrectly in the middle of that first game. And that's sort of what we do in ground racing a bit is we... we we almost train the dogs to run individually by themselves, and, and trainers fixate a little bit on what the the time the dogs are running is, because that's how they judge its ability. Uh, but the issue is, then the young dogs get into field racing and and don't quite know that it's an alien environment to them. So
3: it's a a funny concept. I've never really considered it like that because when you think we rear pups and they're against each other in runs, running up and down, then all of a sudden we isolate them when we. Train them, don't we? We've never.
5: I think. I think from from my history, one of the the or experience, one of the one of the things I think that has changed the most since I've been in the industry is in the in the 1980s we brought the electronic clocks into tracks with a semaphore board where on trial days trainers could see a, a time. And back when I started, trainers would predominantly run dogs to get either together or in fields of four. And there was very little solo trialing, and and I think what's happened is the allure of the uh, of the timing systems have meant that now they just put dogs around by themselves because that's how they are judging the the ability and quality of their dog. But um, in all other walks of life, we usually have you know some form of apprenticeship type system where where you learn you learn what you're actually going to be doing in the big time. So. So the irony is we run fields of eight racing and, and that's really the only time that the dogs experience that. They don't experience that in any form of early training. Um, and the other thing I would I would think from my experience is that whenever professional trainers that really know what they're on about, whenever they, they trial, they always trial two dogs together. And I just think it creates a bit of that competitive instinct within the greyhounds and it also teaches them the to the, the fact that they need to bump one another and at times they 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 need to be able to, to balance on a turn when they take that bump.
3: It's certainly a topic that I know we could spend hours mm. talking about but Corey I know you're so proud of the Meadows. You've been there since Day day Dot um, as a the curator there and the track manager and last year in December uh, the Phoenix, the inaugural Phoenix was run and I was there as a guest and it was one of the best nights I've ever had on track. And for you, obviously coming from a completely different perspective because you were working in the weeks leading up to it. But tell us about the Phoenix and the showcasing to the world, basically, um, what that race meant to you. And we'll have a listen to Wow, She's Fast after that.
5: Yeah, certainly uh, last year the Phoenix uh, became the richest race to the winner that we'd run in Victoria up to that point. And, and this year... Uh, we're just about to start to ramp up towards again and moves to a million dollars to the winner. Uh, from a track perspective, we've got weeks in advance of ensuring that the, the track is going to be in pristine condition around the time we run that race and also the grounds as well and the gardens. So the team here at the Meadows really worked diligently and, and hard up to that point to ensure that everything looks great because that, that was one of our first occasions where we've gone on to to air television, it certainly grabbed a much wider audience. Um, and on the, on the night in particular, I was driving the lure that night, so uh, the noise from the, um, the sports bet crowd as, as Wellesie's fast um, led down the front straight. The last time was... just gave me goosebumps. It's only one of only a couple of times I've experienced that on-track sort of atmosphere to that level. Um, and I was exceptionally pleased to see Uh, Cal Greeno win that race. Cal's a a trainer I've got a great deal of respect for as a a curator, and I I listen to him uh, whenever he might have an opinion for me about the track. Um, And the fact that his training of that greyhound, and she hadn't seen much of the Meadows before that race, and and to come out and win that race in the the fashion that she did was uh, an incredible performance by the dog, and Cal. Um, the night, it was extremely pleasing that the the entire show went off without a hitch on the night. So, um, so it's been it's been a a great achievement on myself and the team at the Meadows, and we're moving towards it again this year, and uh, hopefully uh, it goes just as well as what it did last
3: year. Well, let's relive that moment from last year.
0: They're racing. Aston Rupee jumped away. OK. Away fast there. Spotted Oak. Delete settling down. Coblenz handy. Followed by Wow. She's fast. As they turn to the back, Aston Rupee is about fifth in the centre. As they turn down the back straight and Spotted Oak was the leader. Went down the back about three in front. Walsh wow, she's fast. They followed by Coblenz third. Over to the inside. Then Jungle Juice. Followed by Vice Grip. And then came Aston Rupee. Out to the tail is Billy Craig and True Kalinda. Turning for home though. Walsh wow, she's fast. Takes over. And Walsh wow, she's fast. Is coming away to win the Phoenix. Second spotting again. The and third is Coblands and they were followed by Billy Creek. Behind them then came True Colling followed then by Aston Rupee and out to the title winning Vice Grip and also Jungle Juice and the time is around 29.69. What a run. He should, have a, he should have a wiki page, Hawk. He's superstar oh, I'm too. I'm sure he it has. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, Corey, um, it's been fantastic, mate. I, I hope they, that you sit around the table when decisions are made. You've got such an incredible... View on on the issues uh, with uh, with greyhound racing and safety and perception and so on. So I, I hope they, that you your views are heard from time to time. Now, Simone, what don't we know about Simone?
4: Uh,
5: Simone will probably be able to tell a bit of this story, but uh, Simone's a, a fan of a TV show called Doc Mart, and uh, it airs in the UK and across Australia as well, and it's filmed in a in a small uh, called Port Isaac in the UK and uh, through my connection to a TV show called Doctor Who I actually know one of the stars of Doc Martin and Simone on a, on a trip we took over to the UK got to meet uh, Ian McNeese is his name, famous actor so what I discovered about Simone is she cries at the drop of a hat <laughs> it's really easy to, to get to her heart and uh, i let her finish off the story of um, the story around her birthday in
3: Port Isaac. What was that when we were sitting there outside the moat and then um, I was sitting next to Ian. Is that when, I think someone said, oh, if you want to go and meet Martin Clunes, you better go now. And he's I, the main man. He he's is the, the main,
0: main man. Doc Martin he's man. The yeah. Martin <laughs> man and, and she burst into tears. And
3: is that, is that and, when I sort of climbed over Ian's <laughs> knees?
5: She was sitting on his seat and leapt across, leapt across Ian and a table to get to Martin Clunes, so... Um, <laughs>
3: Whilst <laughs> with whilst
0: wiping tears down her and, cheeks, random tears,
3: literally, and, 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 and then Martin Clunes and I were discussing the size of cod pieces, in <laughs> men behaving <laughs> badly, and right. um, Ben Affleck in um, Shakespeare in Love. That's what it was. It was so hilarious. There you yeah, go. right,
0: uh, Corey? You've nailed it with that, and you've nailed it with everything <laughs> else this morning. And now, the, as we let you go, um, you've got a seat on the bus. And Simone would have told you about our love bus that so never gets really off the ground. But we we've got a massive crew, and I. I reckon
1: you're, I think he's
0: now number one. Oh, the, the crazy women from Tasmania. We'll make, we'll make yeah. him drive. He can be the
1: driver. Well, he can be our H&S. He can be our safety advisor. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Don't take that turn so sharply. <laughs> 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 hey, mate, good on you. Um, I've been absolutely fascinated because it's an area that I'm interested in and um, you, you seem more astute about it than anyone I think I've ever spoken to. So keep up the good work, mate. Thanks very
2: much. Loving their racing, pacing and chasing. Matt Stewart, Dan Maliki, and Simone Fisher, cracking the codes.
0: Guys, the King Island story is one that I've been following with great interest, as we said earlier in the intro. And Chris Tiplock is one of the mainlanders who's going to try and help in any way he can by providing some horses uh, for King Island. And Chris joins us now. Uh, how are you, Chris?
4: I'm really well, thanks Matt, how's yourself?
0: Not too bad, I think you like everyone else thought the same thing when we heard that King Island was in crisis, you thought, can I help and it's on my bucket list
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, look certainly, I, I don't know how much of a help I'd, I thought I could be when, when I saw the, saw the Facebook post and, and that but I thought um, it is on the bucket list and yeah, if there's an opportunity to tick that off, then then fantastic
1: Chris, I, I it's Dan Malicki here, I... um. I called the King, a King Island meeting. It was actually a New Year's Day meeting. I think it was their cup meeting, but uh, it would have been early 90s. And you're right. It, I'm, if I hadn't have been there, I wouldn't know how to have appreciated what I was a part of. And mixed meeting of thoroughbreds and, and harness. And I remember in one of the harness, it had to be a, a stand-start race, when the uh, strand was released, it took part of the running rail off with it. <laughs> and... <laughs> But the crowd was fantastic. It's huge for King Island. Um, I came home like I'd been on holiday for a month. I must have had about 10 extra kilos of things, and they were mainly made up of the King Island brie. And believe me, when they say that's the best brie, unequivocally it's the best and all the lobsters and everything you think about King Island. Tom Reynolds was the um, racing minister at the time and his son was over there, farmer, and and provide all of the stuff. But it was an amazing experience. I I thought it was fantastic and and I would hate to see that uh, that subside. Um, I think they might have had five or six meetings or enough of a season to have enough meetings, but it had tremendous history about it. Yeah, 1892. What can you do to help, Chris? Look, I'm...
4: My my busy period is is probably from from February when the when the breaking in starts. Like I'm i a breaker mainly by trade until um, bit of pre training. Uh, obviously have my own have, have a license and train my own. But uh, I've got some slow slower horses that that struggle in Melbourne grade, I suppose. And and look, if I can get over there and take that time off from sort of mid November, December, January when I'm a bit quieter, uh, I think you know. If that can help any any bit, they, they've been very very welcoming to me. Um, Audrey Hamer, the president there, she's she's been on the phone every few days um, talking to me. When I message her about any any questions she gets back to me. Uh, Jim Taylor's rung me, who's who's one of the leading trainers there. The last few years, I, I believe, and he's given me a, a few a few um, bits of information as to what I you know what I'm in store for. Uh, I'm I'm certainly not going over there thinking that. I'm gonna make a fortune or anything like that, but if I can, like if I can, 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 enjoy myself over there for a bit of a break and, and bring some horses over there and uh, probably train some horses over there that, that are already there. I think that's probably what's needed as well. Um, I personally can probably only get three or four horses over myself. Shane Bottomley rang me yesterday. He wants to send either two or three. Um, so look, if I if I can add eight or ten horses to the to the program and that. Uh, allow for allows for um uh, field sizes to, to be to be able to support the meetings then it's fantastic
3: chris uh, it sounds like something the logistics of it would be quite considerable getting horses across to king island what would be the plan there and would be there be a lot of expense or is it something that you think people would support just out of pure passion and the need to keep these races running
4: from from what i'm aware of, uh, up, not not my horses getting over there, but I think a lot of people have got on the bandwagon and and started getting organised to send some horses over there, um, from what Audrey sort of uh, suggested. Um, for for me, she rang me the other day and said that, um, that the barge that takes the takes the floats and the horses over there, um, they have offered to subsidise um, that travel for me, which um, and allowed me to go on the on the barge. As well as a as a handler, um, so that was that was very good of them. Um, it's it's really in its pleasuring base for me. I, I don't know the logistics of it all to be honest. Um, and I'm just just taking a punt that uh, yeah that that we can get them over there a reasonable sort of sort of time and price and, and then go from there. But uh, yeah, look, uh, there's that, probably something something that needs to be asked to the, the locals and the people that have already done it.
0: Yeah, it's a big job, and it's a human element as well, as we discussed in the intro. Uh, hey, mate, we'll keep tabs on it, and we'll, we'll give you a hoi closer to it just to see how things are working out, but we're going to follow this story with great interest and uh, and, uh, and uh, see how it all plays out, but fingers crossed. No, that, That's
4: wonderful. Uh, I think any, any media sort of releases on it is, is, is fantastic
0: um, for us, yeah. Beauty, mate. Good on you, Chris. Okay, thank you. Chris Diplock there. Hey, guys, we've come to an end to another
1: magnificent show. Dan, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the ride to Timers. Yeah, Fiend Stakes Day at Mooney Valley. But what a, I reckon that's a great scene. So looking forward to that and terrific race tonight. One of the best races. Uh, certainly the strongest free-for-all I've seen in a while. and on Honolulu Bay. Mm. Uh, and then you add the, the Otara Saints Tango Taras into it. It is a must-watch race tonight at Melton. And you're going to be there today too with the Darcinator, aren't you, no, Simone? No, I'm
3: not. She's going with a friend. Yeah, I'm working. Dumped you.
0: Hey, we'll catch you next week. Yeah, we will. Good on you guys. See you in a couple of hours. In a little while.